Um, we will be in Romans chapter 12 this morning, and we've been going through a series called Decoding Our Mission Values. So our mission, we find in the scriptures that God gives us, is to make disciples of all nations. So our mission here at Riverstone is advancing the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. So our mission values, we find throughout the scriptures that these mission values are biblical priorities for guiding our ministry. It helps us to evaluate how we're doing. Are we on task following God's mission? Because we know as the church that God has called us to a high calling, to be obedient to his word. So those who are going to be graduating and moving on, uh, maybe finding a church, or those who are still looking for a church, these mission values keep close to your heart that you would seek these for the church that you become a part of. So those who are graduating and finding a church, maybe by your college, make sure that they're following the scriptures, that they're keeping these mission values, that these things are throughout the scriptures that are shown that the church should follow. So we've chosen just five that we know for our, our guiding principles or priorities. So the first one is dependent on the Spirit and rooted in the Bible, centered on the gospel, being devoted to one another, and focused on the mission. So this morning, we're going to be talking about being devoted to one another. There was this older man, he was in his 80s, and this is a true story. He was going to a doctor's appointment, and as he was going, he was in the waiting room, he kept looking at his watch, and finally he was called in, and the doctor brought him into his office, and he was there to remove some stitches, and the older man said to the doctor, sir, if there's any way that you can do this quickly, that would be really appreciated because I have to go to another engagement around 9 o'clock. So the doctor said, oh, well, I'll do my best um, so that you can be on your way. But is it with uh, another doctor for your health? Is that why you need to be, be going so quickly? And the older man, he said, no, it's, it's no doctor. Um, I'm going to meet my wife. We try to have breakfast every day. And she's just in another part of the hospital. So the doctor, he said, I don't mean to pry, but um, why is she in the hospital? And the older man, he said, well, she, she's been there for, for years now. And I, I wanted to go because she has Alzheimer's. And she needs constant care. So the doctor, he said, well, I'm going to do my best so that you can go. Um, but if you're a few minutes late, will she be upset? Will she be worried? The old man, he said, no, quietly. He said, and she never will. You see, she doesn't know who I am, and she hasn't recognized me for the last five years. The doctor was taken aback by that. And he said, and you still go every morning to have breakfast with her, even though she doesn't know who you are? And the old man, he reached out his hand, he put his hand on the doctor's shoulder, and he smiled. He said, yeah. She may not know who I am, 
but I know who she is. And I remember for the both of us, what a great picture of devotion. Someone who is giving of himself, asking nothing in return. You see, God has created each one of us with a strong desire to be in community, to fellowship with each other, to long to be loved and to be known. And so being devoted to one another, as Benjamin led us reading through Philippians chapter 2, we can look to Jesus who gave up everything, who was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he said that it was his joy. And who's the joy? It's us. So that we could be given life. So Paul, when he's going through Romans, this letter to this church, who is going through a lot of conflict and division because the church in Rome, there were Jewish Christians and there were Gentile Christians. And there was a time where all of the Jewish people were cast out of Rome for five years. And now they finally came back, back in the church, and they're still trying to work through things. Those who are Jewish Christians are still trying to think through, how does the gospel, how does my relationship with Jesus impact everything that I grew up knowing? The law, keeping the Sabbath, being circumcised. How does this work? And the Gentile Christians who are coming in from mostly pagan background, understanding that there is one true God, thinking we are free in Christ and we can be free. So these believers had some conflicts. But Paul, who's writing, he's trying to explain the gospel to them, that the gospel is now open to anyone who wants to believe, that Jesus, who gave his life, not just for the Jews, but for the entire world, for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, can have a relationship with him and be forgiven of their sins. So Paul, who's writing to Rome in chapter 12, where we'll be reading from, he starts off, by just saying, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul knew that we as a church and as the church he was writing to cannot be one, cannot love each other unless they've been transformed, unless they've been given a new heart. And so for the first 11 chapters, Paul was going through the gospel and explaining to them how this impacts everyone, the amazing mercies of God. You see, it's by his mercy, his grace, given through his son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, his death, burial, and resurrection, that he has finished the work. He has lived perfectly. So those who believe in him can be called his family, his sons and daughters, and be a part of the church. So as he's writing this, he knows that there were some that didn't believe, that were still a part 
of the congregation that met. And if you're someone here today who's never put their faith and trust in Jesus, I'd urge you to please think about it. Understand what Jesus has done for you. And I want to invite you, if you're sitting here today and you've been thinking through that decision, have never made that decision, there's no magic words. There's nothing that you have to do because it's not by what we've done. Because what the scriptures say is we've all fall short. Our good works are like dirty rags to God. But it's by the work, the finished work of what Jesus has done, who lived a perfect life for us, and his death, his sacrifice given on our behalf as our substitute. And so all we have to do is by faith believe that Jesus died for your sins and has come back to life. If you want to make that decision today, you can do that right here and right now. And if you do, I would encourage you to tell a brother or sister that you've made that decision, that maybe you could speak with one of us as a pastor so that we can encourage you. We would love to talk to you more about that. And there are many here that have recently just believed, that are new believers, that we are amongst family, brothers and sisters in Christ, to be encouraged. And that's what Paul is writing about. He's saying now, as a new transformed believer, you're given a new heart. Here are things to, to listen to, to be instructed by, so that God can use us to accomplish his mission. So he's challenging the church. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. We know that we still struggle with sin. As believers, we're not perfect, but we still struggle with our sinful flesh, and the desires in us still want us to have this struggle within. And we know our culture, our world, there are things in our culture and our world that are trying to push God away, that we make life about ourselves. Simple things that the culture tries to teach us to be true but if we take them to the end and understand what they're really trying to teach us, we know it's not what God wants. Things like, you be you. Nobody can tell you what you can or cannot do. Simple statements that seem so innocent, and maybe, yeah, there are some truths to it. But if we continue to follow these truths, you define who you are. You can choose your gender, your age. No one is going to make your rights or wrongs but you, not even God. You see, these are the, some of the things that our culture teaches us. But Paul is warning us, don't follow the world, but be transformed, much like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. The caterpillar can't decide when he wants to become a butterfly he doesn't just hug himself and squeeze tight and think, oh, it's time. It doesn't work like that. But it's by nature. It's a process. So as Christians, we are justified. We have been received into the kingdom of light. Now we are followers of Jesus. But we're also going through a process of being sanctified. That there is this ongoing struggle. That we want to follow God. Continue to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And even the faith that we have to believe in Jesus 
is given to us by God. When we look through Ephesians chapter 2, it says, we were dead in our transgressions. You see, left to ourselves without God, we can do nothing. We are dead. And yet God, he's reached out to us and he's regenerated our hearts and given us faith to believe. Given us faith to believe in Jesus. So now we want to model after him. And yet we can't love without first being changed by him. Let's continue to read through in verse 8, verse 3 to 8. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Does anybody love Legos? I love Legos. The thing I love most about Legos is when you open the package, you get the instruction, and then all the pieces are there sealed up. You have to open them, right? Sometimes they come in like one, two, three bags. And then the instruction manual is just pictures. I love that because my tiny brain can't comprehend words sometimes, so when I just look at the pictures, I can follow along. It's real easy. But then when you open up the sets, you have all the little pieces, and this is what I love most, is even the tiny little studs, even those little tiny pieces, they have a purpose. They're a part of the entire set. Without that one single stud, if you lose it, then the set is incomplete. And it can't fulfill its purpose. Paul is telling us that as a church, we function like a body. We're all different. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells in us and has equipped us with at least one spiritual gift. Does it say to keep it to ourselves? It says to exercise it, to participate together, to build up the body. You see, we need the church as much as the church needs us. You see, sometimes we just come and we sit down, we find our seat, we hear the preacher and we go home. Some of us come to Bible studies and small groups. Some of us participate in ministries. But Paul's also saying, we can do those things and still not be devoted to one another. We can go through the motions, and we can check off our list and think, I'm following what God wants me to do. I'm a part of a small group. I'm part of a Bible study. I serve in the church. Yet there's something more. You see, we can't truly love unless God is working through us by the transformed heart. And I want to encourage you that we do have opportunities to be connected in small groups and Bible studies. 
And again, what Paul's going to explain further in this chapter is these aren't checklists, but it's out of an overflow of love for Jesus that we want to desire to be here, to be a part of God's mission. Because we cannot complete God's mission without all of us gathering together. We can't fulfill his mission without being part of the church. That means coming regularly, not just once a month, but coming weekly to gather on the Lord's day, to worship, to go through scripture, to pray with one another. And if you're not a part of a Bible study, I want to encourage you that next week, after each of the services, there is going to be called a group connect in the Woodside Room, just out these doors, where some of our small group leaders and Bible study leaders will be there representing their group, that they would love to meet you, and maybe it will work out that through the time or weeknights, they can explain all those details to you further, but we'd love for you to be a part of that. And if you're already part of a small group, I want to encourage you to think through, are you just going through the motions? Are you just doing this so that you can say that you're a good Christian? Because Paul is telling us that he wants to continue, God wants to continue to transform us. You see, the church is not just a place of entertainment. It's not just a place where it's fun or amusement. It's not a club. It's not a company. It's not a business. It's not an after-school curriculum. But the mission of God is fulfilled only through the church. That he calls us to gather together for a higher calling. That he wants us to be devoted to one another in love. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. One of the things I love most about our younger generation is they have this unique ability to know when someone is genuine and when they're fake. When Paul is saying, let love with, be without hypocrisy, it's this understanding that he's saying without a disguise, without alternative motives, without hidden agendas. And again, Paul reiterates that we truly cannot love the way that God calls us to love without God changing us. You see, Jesus even warns the Pharisees of hypocrisy. He tells them that all you are is you pretend to be good on the outside, but inside you're dead. You come on a Sunday morning and you pretend to go through the motions, but spiritually you're far from me. Be careful of the seeds of hypocrisy. Thoughts in our minds that think, I don't need somebody else. I don't need to be in a Bible study. I don't do those things. I don't struggle 
with those sins. I don't need help. Be careful of those thoughts because those thoughts are seeds of hypocrisy and not dealt with will grow and destroy our relationships with others and hurt the church. Abhor what is evil. This word that Paul uses, he talks about hate, dislike, and sometimes even a fear of. Does anybody hate spiders? Well, there was this one time I was driving on the highway, left lane so I couldn't pull over, and I'm just driving, doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and all of a sudden I see this spider. It looked like it was the size of my hand, and I could... I, I, feel like I could see its fangs and it had like saliva like dripping off of its fangs like ready and I I'm telling you I thought I saw its tongue like just lick its lips <laughs> like just go straight across and I was just like oh my gosh I gotta focus what do I do what do I do and then all of a sudden of course it just drops right down onto my lap you know sometimes we hate spiders so much that we can't move on unless we know that they're gone that they're taken care of What Paul is saying here is we should have the same mindset for our own sin. That we cannot move on unless we focus on the sin that we're dealing with. We need to put it to death. I'm glad that Paul didn't say abhor those who do evil because that would mean all of us. But he says, hate what is evil. Christians, cling to what is good. Hate evil. Hating is not wrong if we're hating what we should be hating, the enemy, the true enemy, the devil, and our sin, our fleshly desires that pull us away from what's right. Cling to what is good. Hate what is evil. And Christians, I have seen many things in our culture seep into the church. Have you? I think one of those things that I've noticed is the issue of pornography. That as Christians, there are things that we should never compromise on. It's not limited to just magazines, websites, but it's seeping into everything, our everyday life, our social media, our TV shows, the movies that we watch, commercials that we see. Christians... Let us be careful what we consume and what we watch. Be careful what we let ourselves watch. One episode at a time, and then we realize where we are. Some even say that pornography is like a new drug because researchers have shown that it changes the way our brain functions, just like an addiction. But it doesn't take long before it destroys our relationships. And a lie that we tell ourselves is it's not hurting anyone. But we know, even just by watching, we're participating and supporting and objectifying people made in the image of God. Marriages, families, and the lives of children are being broken because of this. Christians, cling to what is good. Hate what is evil. Be devoted to to this family, brotherly love. Give preference to one another. Be present and be all there. I think is one of the best ways that we can
be devoted to one another. In our culture, another big issue right now as parents is we're still trying to figure out when we should allow our children to have access to screens. I don't know if some of you ever have used or owned one of those phones all the way on the left. Um, It wouldn't really fit in your pocket, I don't know. Maybe we had bigger pockets then. Um, But I want to read just a little blurb from a book. And this is the title of the book. It's called iGen, Why Today's Super Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood, and What That Means for the Rest of Us. It says, many people have argued that kids communicating with their friends electronically is no big deal. They're connecting with their friends, so who cares how they do it? In this view, electronic communication is just as good as in-person communication. If so, it would be just as good for mental health and happiness. This is just not the case. Kids who spend more time on screen activities are more likely to be unhappy And those who spend more time on non-screen activities are more likely to be happy. There's not a single exception. All screen activities are linked to less happiness. And all non-screen activities are linked to more happiness. And they didn't just do this study with kids, but with parents and adults. How are we modeling our time for our children Even in the times of rest, I think we are forfeiting the most precious, life-changing moments to screen time, the times when we want to break, when our kids come home from school, when we come home from work, when we're traveling in the car. What do those times look like for you? When you're gathered around the dinner table, if you make that a priority for your family, is there a space in your home that you consider tech-free. Jim Elliott, who was a missionary to the Amazon, who gave up his own life to sharing the gospel, he said this, wherever you are, be all there. I think being present is just one way that we can be devoted to one another. That we can be speaking and modeling Jesus in those precious moments. Verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation and devoted to prayer. Prayer is so important for us as believers. It brings us together. God gives us this amazing ability because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Now we can have open communication with God at any time. We don't have to do anything special. Because the finished work of Jesus has allowed us to be in the presence of God anywhere at any time. And yet, we still struggle to find that time in our busyness. But I want to take just a minute to pray right now for our brothers and sisters in Lebanon and in Syria. We've been in communication with our brothers and sisters and they said that we're getting by but we're pressed to afford water, electric, and food. The Aleppo Church, which is in Syria, praises God for the bakery developed via support from Riverstone. Yet what they covet most are our prayers. You see, there's a lot of financial crises right now with our brothers and sisters, so let's just 
offer prayers for them right now. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that we can come here as a family. We pray for our brothers and sisters. Lord, we thank you that you can hear us and that you answer our prayers. And so, Lord, as one body right now, Lord, we pray that you would provide for the needs of our brothers and sisters. We know that they love you so much and that they want to continue to minister effectively. So, Lord, we pray that you provide for their needs. But, Lord, more importantly, we also pray that you would continue to help them persevere through this hardship. Give them the faith to continue to minister to hundreds, thousands of people who are coming to faith every day in the Middle East. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 14 to 21, as we finish this chapter. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When I was younger, I thought this this statement, heap burning coals on your head, I thought it was saying that by our love, we are getting our own revenge, that I'm going to love you to death. But that's not really what it's saying. There was an Egyptian ritual where people who came in repentance to apologize for what they've done, they would carry hot coals above their head. So what Paul's saying and is reminding us is it's by our kindness and our love that we can bring people to repentance before God because that's exactly what God did for us. By his kindness and his patience, he led us to repentance. And Paul is saying, in the church, there's going to be conflict. Never repay evil for evil. He's not just saying believers and unbelievers, but he's saying in the church, there will be conflict. And the the church that's godly doesn't mean that there will never be conflict. But it means that when there is conflict, that there's forgiveness and reconciliation. I love how swords are made. Have you ever thought about it? That swords are forged. They're put into a hot fire and heated up so that the steel can be mended and shaped. And as it's placed into the hot fire, it's taken out and hammered so that it can take away some impurities. It's not just to shape the sword, but it's also to give the sword its strength. That we, as a church, should understand forgiveness When we do harm to one another, we should seek to apologize. That we should be first to forgive. 
that oftentimes it's easy for us to judge another person or get upset about what somebody else has done. Paul is also saying that there is unity because of Jesus, that only the church can have this unity because of Jesus, that even in our world when there's disunity between rich and poor, even between races and in politics, whether Republican or Democrat, white or black, that in the church we can find unity. Yes, there might be conflict, but we want to be effective ministers of the gospel. And for swords to be effective, it needs to be sharpened. That we need one another. We need the pressures of one another. We need the teachings, the encouragement, the challenges that one another brings in our own life. But that's only going to happen if we're devoted, if we put ourselves in those situations, if we get involved, get connected. You see, a church and a sword is not formed just by looking at it or coming and brought before a blacksmith, but it needs to go through hard times sometimes to be sharpened. We need to be taught and challenged. And so I'm thankful that next week, if you want to be a part of the Group Connect, you can come. But also, we want to thank all of our volunteers who are a part of the Youth and Children Ministries. If you come on Saturday, February 8th, there's going to be Chick-fil-A chicken breakfast for you because we want to say thank you because we know that you are a huge part of our church, that without you, we can't do ministry to the hundreds of kids that are downstairs waiting as I am about to end. And remember that precious time that you'll have with them driving home. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much that you hear us, that you love us, and you call us to be one. We thank you that you are the one that empowers us to do that. So, Lord, we pray that as we leave, that we wouldn't just be leaving an empty chair behind, but we would continue our week devoted to one another, praying for our brothers and sisters, thinking about them first before ourselves, putting their needs before ours, because, Lord, you have done that for us by your grace and your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.